You are listening to Cut to Kellogg, a podcast by and for media experts and enthusiasts on the biggest questions facing the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're talking about no games, just sports. With the Winter 2022 Olympic Games set to begin on February 4th, anticipation is building as to what upsets, triumphs, and what the final medal count will be. All right, here we go. The Olympics is the largest multi-sport event in the world and draws a global audience. In fact, it's estimated that media coverage reaches approximately 4.5 billion people. Media includes the way we watch the events and the supplemental coverage and can play a large role in crafting the reality of the Olympic Games for those who cannot attend. Research suggests that the way the Olympic Games are covered can have a profound impact on viewers' perspectives on topics such as gender, nationality, the importance of specific events, and social issues such as mental health. This is in part due to the shift to sportainment and sports coverage, where the media focuses on the human interest stories of the athletes. This was extremely prevalent at the Tokyo Olympics and the coverage around Simone Biles and her withdrawal from the gymnastics competition. It begs the question, is this changing the ultimate goal of the Games, which is to utilize sport for the promotion of peace and mutual understanding among nations of the world, or taking away from the athletes' and viewers' experience? Let's cut to Kellogg and meet our guests for today. is Taylor Ritzel. Taylor is a second year MBA student in Kellogg's TY program. Prior to school, Taylor spent the last five years in Los Angeles and roles across the entertainment industry, generating content at some of the biggest streamers, including Hulu and Netflix. Taylor is also an accomplished athlete. She was a five-time member of the U.S. national team, a world champion, and an Olympic gold medalist at the 2012 London Olympics in rowing. However, Taylor discovered rowing later on. Previously a swimmer and a cross-country runner, Taylor shifted to rowing during her time at Yale and went on to become a three-time NCAA national champion. That said, Taylor will be chatting with us today about the intersection of women's sports, media, and the Olympics. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Taylor. We're so excited to have you here. Awesome. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So because you started rowing at school, you know, how did you get into the sport and when did you decide that you were going to make a run for the Olympic team. Yeah. So I, like you mentioned, grew up swimming. I'm from Colorado, so there's not a ton of rowing out there in a landlocked state. And so I actually wanted to swim in college when it came time to kind of choose where to go and recruiting. I set up all these meetings with various collegiate swim coaches at the schools I was looking at, and it was going to be a weekend long trip with my mom. And she had set up meetings with the rowing coaches, unbeknownst to me, a family friend of ours had his own recruiting business and had heard that rowing uh, coaches liked tall athletes, I'm six two. So um, basically, I think she kind of saw the writing on the wall that I wasn't quite fast enough to be able to swim or at least be recruited at those schools. And so 
I'd literally never seen a boat or an oar or been out on the water before. So essentially after that weekend trip, Yale called me um, the Monday we got back and said that they wanted to recruit me. So I quickly tried to figure out how (laughs) to row. I got on the rowing machine. We found anybody and everybody who would maybe help sort of teach me the ropes. And then, you know, trained a lot that summer, went out to Connecticut at spring break, my senior year of high school, and essentially tried to come to TL my freshman year, knowing a little bit about rowing at least, but it was definitely a big learning curve. So yeah, so I was very new in college, essentially recruited without ever having rowed before, which, you know, was not part of the admission scandal that kind of blew up my story. (laughs) I was like, did you guys pay them? But my parents were like, no, we'd never do that. And yeah, so ended up rowing all four years. And then the way that you're selected to the Olympic team is dependent upon both the coaches reference and recommendation, but then also your speed on the rowing machine. And so, you know, I'd been in touch with the senior national team coach for a a bit. I tried out and competed at two under 23 uh, world championships while in college during the summer. So while other people were having internships, that's what I did. And so when it came time to kind of figure out what to do after graduating that fall, maybe it was spring, I'm not sure. The national team coach invited me to come train with the women who trained out of Princeton, New Jersey. And that's it's like a full-time training camp essentially for the whole year. Going to the Olympics, it's really pinnacle for a lot of athletes and it takes so much time and effort. I mean, it's just kind of amazing what athletes of that caliber can do. Giving your experience with the Olympics and in media, I'd love to hear about what role you think media has played in the Olympic experience? Yeah, for sure. I mean, lots of thoughts on this. I think, you know, growing up, the Olympics were a huge event in our household. So winter, summer, we would watch. My parents actually let me watch TV during the week when the Olympics were on. I'd stay up late to watch all the events and I absolutely loved it. So huge Olympics fan. But then it wasn't really until I got to London and experienced the the Olympics in person. Yes, but more so just watching the BBC coverage that they had and comparing that directly with the NBC coverage. And then also, you know, having watched the this past Olympics in Tokyo and Rio on NBC and, you know, whether that's online or (laughs) however uh, the easiest way to watch it was. But I realized that I think NBC has come a long way, particularly when trying to figure out the how to sort of balance time zones and time differences, but then also their, you know, what how they manage their streaming service versus, you know, any sort of social clips or media. And then also obviously live coverage. And that's very tricky because it's this whole ecosystem and they're trying to kind of manage not letting people know results earlier than um, they should. So or not wanting to spoil anything. I will say though, I think what's been frustrating in general just is the extreme attention on very specific individuals. And don't get me wrong. I think the the likes of Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky, Simone Biles, all of these people are absolutely incredible. And I, I don't mean to say that we shouldn't hear their stories, but I think that the thing that I love about the Olympics and the thing that I think the BBC did very well, although obviously it was focused more on the British team, was to really highlight... <laughs> just other sports and other athletes. And I think NBC does have some fun sort of um, little snippets of people and different athletes in their lives, but it almost feels like you have to have some sort of crazy compelling story in order to, and I would argue that every Olympian does, but you know, had to overcome some crazy barrier as an Olympian, in addition to being an Olympian in order to get any sort of coverage on NBC. And then you have your like high echelon, like the Michael Phelps of the world, And those are the only athletes that get that exposure. So I just wish that it was a bit more equitable, both across sports and then also genders. I mean, I think as a female athlete, 
what's interesting is I've never felt like things were inequitable, honestly, which I, I feel so, so, so grateful for. And I think a big reason for that is at Yale, when I was a rower there, the women's team was just honestly way better than both men's teams, the heavyweights and the lightweights. The lightweights were pretty good, but so it was like, I don't know. I just, we, we were really proud of that and felt good about it. <laughs> so, and we got to use the same boathouse and felt like we had all the sort of similar access to what the men had. And then on the national team, same thing. The women were much more successful than the men when I was on the team. So I think there was just, I mean, there are a few comments here and there that we would hear like, oh, the event that you're in is less competitive or something like that. But I, I felt, I felt really lucky to, um, you know, have sort of resources available as compared to like women versus men. I think when it comes to rowing, there's, you're not making the big bucks. <laughs> so you really have to do it for, for loving, you know, loving the sport and you're making a lot of sacrifices and there are differences there that we can get into about, you know, I think like career progression and opportunity that I think is really different between the men's and women's programs, particularly in rowing. But yeah, I'd say as, to answer your question with the media coverage part, really, I just wish it was a bit more equitable across sports. It's, it's a great way to learn about sports too. Cause I think that that will, you know, you never know if you inspire someone who really is excited about either getting into rowing or doing some sort of obscure sport and keeping that sport alive. Cause at, you know, I know a lot of Olympic sports are sort of threatened, especially the ones that aren't being viewed as much. And there's a good chance that they might not be included in future Olympics as they try and bring in new sports. So the more we can feature those sports, the better. Yeah. I think it's, it's crazy. Cause you're totally right. You hear time and time again, if someone wins an Olympic gold medal or any medal, you know, that's a big accomplishment and they, sometimes we'll say, well, I watched the Olympics growing up as a kid and that's how I discovered the sport and it really changed my life. I mean, you never know where you're going to find your niche and you just don't even know the opportunities available. Yeah. You know, so I totally, I totally agree. And a lot of the things that you touched on, you know, we wanted to talk to you about. So love that you touched on it. You know, social media was really introduced into the Olympics in 2008 at Beijing with Michael Phelps swimming eight races for eight medals. You know, do you think it's changed the way viewers participate in the Olympics, given that they have access to it all the time and they can get the results before they can figure out what happens. Do you think that kind of detracts from the excitement of the Olympics? Do you think it changes the way that viewers participate in that experience? Yeah, that's a great question. I, so I personally really love just watching the events. So I tend to stay off social media during the Olympics, just so I can make sure to sort of see in real time, or at least in prime time, the results of different events. So I'm probably not the best at answering this question. Cause I think, yeah, to your point, I mean, it did, I guess was big in 2008, but even in 2012, like, I think I had a Twitter account. I had to go back and like delete some old tweets, not cause they were offensive, just cause they were so embarrassingly stupid. <laughs> And I was like, wow, I really didn't understand. I still don't really understand Twitter at this point, but so it's funny thinking about like in 2012, what I was tweeting about. <laughs> so I'm glad I found those after a few years, but so yeah, I think the role of social media, I mean, what I'll say to that point, not necessarily from a coverage standpoint, but what I think is really cool about the rise of social media and other forms is that you get real sort of direct uh, linkage to the athletes themselves. And I know 
this is a bit of a tangential argument, but I think it's really been great for female athletes because there aren't as many sponsorship opportunities for female athletes. I mean, and even with Olympic athletes too, as compared to some of the pro sports, like the NFL and the NBA, obviously you're not paid nearly as much at all, if anything. So having that sort of way to engage with fans or get people excited about your story and watching you race, I think is a huge opportunity for athletes and kind of helping to build your brand. And then just on the female athlete front, I think what's been really cool, and this is more on the collegiate level, but with the NIL rulings where NCAA athletes can now earn money for their name, image, and likeness, I think it's been really interesting to read about how it's actually really, really helping female athletes because nowadays, instead of, you know, your Nike contract and sort of the money you earn from Nike being totally dependent on results or, you know, say that you get injured for during a year or you have to go on maternity leave. Like if you're not showing up to certain races that are um, agreed upon in your contract, or you're not performing a certain amount then you're not paid. And I think that it's all changing now with social media. And, you know, if you have a certain fan base, it doesn't totally matter what your performance is, which I think performance is important. Don't get me wrong. But I I think it's just kind of putting some power back into the athlete's hands, which is really cool. Yeah. Well, that is a, you know, kind of interesting segue to my next question, which was about, you know, media coverage for women. And I was doing some research before about the 2020 Olympics. And it said that women's sports received approximately 60% of the screen time in prime time Olympic coverage, which is, you know, really incredible given that usually women's sports gets 4% of all media coverage throughout the year. However, when you're looking at who's providing, you know, the commentary and the analysis, it's approximately, you know, 82% men. So, Some would argue that it kind of creates this by men for men bias. And in your opinion, you know, do you think that's true or do you think it doesn't necessarily matter who's, who's commenting or doing the analysis as long as it it's being shown for the wider population? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think first of all, the fact that women are being covered like that is awesome. And I think I'd I'd argue that a big reason for that is probably because of the certain stars like Simone Biles and Katie Ledecky, who just completely dominated all of the coverage, which again, I totally support, I think is great. But then I almost feel like the way that we put pressure on a lot of these athletes, because essentially like Simone Biles sort of carried all of NBC's coverage over those two weeks. And so I'd be curious to know if like how much of that coverage was actually just Simone or the women's gymnastics teams, for example. But And anyway, I think in terms of when when it comes to commentators, I mean, I think it should absolutely be 50-50 or even, you know, if you, for the most part, if it's women's gymnastics, then you should probably have women commentators, I would think. I think it's probably just a result of, you know, men just having been around for longer. So they probably seem to have more experience and we're given opportunities more so than women were at a certain stage. And so now they're at a place in their career where they're sort of able to dictate which events they commentate on. I think there's still a long ways to go when it comes to yeah, ensuring equity amongst most things. <laughs> so yeah. It's probably, but yeah, great question. Yeah. I, so it seems like, you know, one big theme that from our conversation is the idea of sport tainment, right? That the media is focusing on like human interest stories and not just, you know, what happens. So like 2020, like you said, it's Simone Biles and a lot of it was around her withdrawing from the competition, which brought up, you know, mental health issues, which we don't need to get into, but it was also, you know, Caleb Russell who, or Sydney McLaughlin, you know, there were definitely stars picked and showcased, you know, I'd be really interested. Do, 
how does that change the dynamics on the U.S. team? Does it change how you interact with athletes from other countries? How does that influence the interactions amongst the U.S. athletes? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, well, yeah, that's interesting. I think first and foremost, and this is another thing that I forgot to mention, but America loves a a winning story, right? (laughs) So where it's all about the medal count, it's all about getting the most gold medals and the most total medals than any other country. And, and that's how a lot of these national governing bodies, so like a US rowing or a USA swimming, that's how their funding for the next Olympic cycle is determined. It's based on the number of medals they get at the previous Olympics. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Obviously you have to perform. Obviously you're, you want a medal, everyone wants a medal, but I also think sometimes relying so much on those winning stories can kind of take away from some of the other key aspects of the Olympic movement and being an Olympian. I mean, some of the most moving stories I know from my sport have been from women who didn't medal and they got fourth and that's the hardest place to get in my opinion. And they like barely made the Olympics and they were considered the underdogs completely. So anyway, I could go into their story, but I think there's this kind of obsession with, with winning, which again, totally understand, but I think maybe there could be a bit more of a balance. And then also because of that, I'd be curious actually when NBC decides to, to sort of focus on certain athletes versus others, or if they have backups and then if they don't quite do as well as they thought they would, then they sort of, you know, maybe don't focus as much on them. And, and this is kind of maybe a little bit controversial to say, but I think a lot of it has to do with like attractiveness of the athletes in a lot of ways. If you think about some of the athletes that have really, unless you're like, you know, extremely, extremely dominant, I mean, the amount of times I saw Caleb Russell and he's very dominant, don't get me wrong. And he's super hot and I'm happy to see him anytime, but it's just funny because (laughs) you really, and like Cindy McLaughlin, amazing athlete, but I think a big part of that was because it's media and they really pay attention to how people look. And I think that's just something to kind of think about as people kind of see some of this coverage (laughs) or just even some of the events in particular, like obviously with gymnastics, like there's still this, and I'd love to talk to gymnasts about it sort of in my mind, and maybe I don't understand the sport, but it seems like a bit of an archaic view on like having to look pretty and making sure to put makeup on and like hair perfect and bows and sparkly outfits. And I mean, all of that adds to the, to the performance, no question, but I'm also like, these women are badass athletes. And is that necessary? Cause they're doing these amazing things. So I don't know. Anyway, that's kind of a tangential point, but I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's interesting. Cause there was that whole debate around beach volleyball where one yeah. team didn't want to wear you know, the two piece, they wanted to wear something else. And the judges or the referees were like, you're going to be disqualified. I don't remember the exact details, but it was something outrageous like that. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't wearing, they didn't want to wear a two piece that was revealing. And so they were going to get, for lack of a better word, you know, punished for it. But, you know, just it, it media seems to play this really critical role, right? Like they're really shaping the story of the Olympics, either by highlighting us athletes, but it's, it, it's also interesting because they seem to intensify the rivalry, right? Like it's all about the medal count. They always show the medal count at the beginning of every coverage. And one thing I found interesting was heading into the 2022 Olympics Peacock owned by NBC just released a docuseries about the 2002 Salt Lake City's skating scandal. And that was a huge scandal between, you know, the Russians and the French and and the Canadians and who deserved the gold medal. And it's very interesting that to me that they would release this right before the Olympics. And, and there's other stories about this. 
do you think that media coverage kind of plays into that and they try to really increase this international rivalry of us versus them, which is kind of different from the Olympic ethos, but just to come together through sport? Yeah. Absolutely. And it's hard because part of like miracle, that soul story, like I freaking love that, you know, so it's hard because I, I get why they do it. I think, you know, being able to build the stakes up in any sort of storytelling is what, what makes, you know, stories great and more compelling. So I, I totally think that it can be both good and bad at the same time, but yes, the media definitely does. I think what's interesting is, and what I struggle with is when athletes and their experience and their ability to compete or focus on competition is impeded because of that. And I mean, as an athlete, honestly, it really wasn't like my experience, at least in London, wasn't terrible. I mean, I have one example I can give you where I not, well, I mean, I mean, actually we're going to go into this later, I guess, but we were media trained for a day and they basically were like, don't say anything bad about anything. <laughs> and, you know, but also like uphold certain values and, and really like, but it was clear just sort of not to speak candidly in certain ways. And I had a teammate of mine who tweeted at United because United was a sponsor at the time. And, you know, we had a lot of gear going over, although I'm a serial overpacker, so definitely shouldn't have brought as much as over as I did, but we had to pay for our baggage. And uh, she tweeted and was like, really United? Like we have to pay for our baggage. And they, US rowing made her take it down. So like, that was just one small example. I know I have a friend who was on the US cycling team in 2008, and they were the first team to arrive in Beijing. And I guess the USOC had, or USOPC now had said, because they've included the Paralympians, which is awesome. Um, so the USOPC said, you know, wear your masks, make sure to be careful because, you know, there, you know, it's funny to think of that now, but it was because of the pollution and there was a big sort of, there was a lot of worry in Beijing about that going into the games. And so they did as they were told, wore their masks. And because they were the first team to arrive, there was a lot of photographers and media attention to like, oh, the U.S., how disrespectful they're wearing their masks as they get off the bus. And so then the U.S. OPC, I guess, from what I heard from my friends, so I should probably fact check this, but what basically kind of threw those athletes under the bus and said, like, this is offensive. We don't know why they were wearing their masks. <laughs> so it becomes very, I mean, and that's obviously more on the, the sort of governing body side. And I could go all into that sort of bureaucracy. <laughs> but I think the media plays into that, I mean, as well, obviously, with you know, those relations and the po political side. And obviously there's been politics involved in the Olympics since the dawn of time, really with, you know, the 1980 Olympic boycott, what happened in Munich in 1972. Um, and then now I guess they, I'm so glad that they didn't boycott the Olympics coming up for the athletes, but it sounds like it's going to be a political boycott. So no politicians or government officials are going over from a lot of countries, which is well, interesting. Let me, so, yeah. Let me just ask you about that because it doesn't seem fair to, I mean, these athletes have been training their whole lives to go to the Olympics, right? For a lot of them. Um, and should politics play any role in the Olympics? Because it just, I mean, is another country going to change their behavior because we're not there? I mean, are you just hurting the athletes that have been training and want to go compete for themselves and also for their country? Yeah, I totally agree. I think it should be separated. I think it might be naive to think like, you know, okay, this world event that these country representatives are going to, and it's very competitive and it does have like some sort of 
global like results or I don't know I, it's hard to say like okay so we win the gold medal count like what does that really mean <laughs> I don't know but I totally agree I think it's completely unfair to the athletes and I did my uh, senior thesis on the 1980 Olympic boycott and I talked to quite a few athletes from that era and it was interesting because then in 1984 which was in Los Angeles the Russians boycotted so it was sort of like so it's interesting because I wonder if those athletes in 84 feel like they didn't really win or didn't really medal or vice versa because the 1980 Olympics obviously someone on so that's interesting and then you have the whole doping stuff that was going on both in East Germany and a lot of those communist countries so I don't know it brings up a lot of different issues but ultimately I would say it, it would be really I mean even what happened with the, like 2021 versus 2020 and COVID and I'm so glad I mean I know it was a huge risk and effort on the part of the Japanese population but I'm so glad that those athletes got to compete ultimately. Yeah. You had mentioned athletes kind of speaking out and what comes to my mind from 2020, at least, or even, you know, 2016 with Lily King kind of wagging her finger at the, at the Russian athlete. And then Ryan Murphy also kind of called out the Russian athlete at the last Olympics. And it seemed like they had the perspective of speaking out of turn It kind of brings up the question, Russia is competing under a different flag because of this state-supported cheating scandal. And there's this big debate in the Olympic community. Was it enough? Was it too harsh? Do you think there is a appropriate or better way for the IOC to kind of ensure fairness in the Olympic Games? Because who wants to go and compete with the odds stacked against them? Yeah, I totally, I understand. And I think a part of me, so on the one hand, I think for the athletes that get to compete under Russia, but not Russia. Like it, it's not necessarily, if it's a state-sponsored doping program and regimen, I don't necessarily think it's the athlete's fault either. So, and I, I don't mean to say that they don't have the individual choice to not dope or whatnot, but who knows some of the pressures that are happening within their different federate, like sport federations, I don't know. But so on the one hand, I kind of have some sympathy there because I'm like, maybe they, I mean, sometimes you hear like they didn't know what they were taking, which I don't know about that, but I think there might've been other pressures there that we just aren't familiar with. So it might not be totally fair to the athletes to just not be able to compete at all for a certain amount of time. So there's that. I also think that at the end of the day, basically there's, and, and this didn't happen in rowing, or at least I did not experience or see any doping because there's just no money. <laughs> like I think it's all sports where there's just a lot of money where, you know, you have the chance to to really make a name for yourself, whether that's in sponsorships or, you know, winning certain events. Like I think track and field is rampant with doping because they have a lot of different events where you can win quite a lot of money and they have a whole circuit called the diamond series in Europe. So there's that, I mean, obviously with cycling, we've seen what all happened there swimming. I'm not totally sure, but obviously I would assume, especially certain countries. So I mean, if you've seen Invictus too, it's wild, but I think what's happened is, and this happened, I think in the era of Lance Armstrong too, or in cycling where the testing agencies just aren't nearly as well-funded as the doping side. And so you have these agencies who are just kind of underfunded or not really well-staffed, or maybe they have other incentives. I don't know, but they are just behind on samples or they just don't have the necessary technology to really track what some of the like latest and greatest drugs are essentially. And so I think it's that, I think just like lagging behind, to be honest, and maybe not, I mean, we would be tested regularly. We would be, you know, people would show up randomly. And so you would have to go test. I never liked to do many blood tests, but a lot of urine tests after we finished 
if you finish, if you win or get second at a national selection regatta, you have to do a blood test. So there's those sort of things in place. But yeah, ultimately, I mean, obviously, look, like doping isn't fair. And I don't think that anyone should be doping. But at the end of the day, is that really going like what's going to change it? And I think there needs to be some sort of punishment, whether it's on a state level or an athlete level and just banning them for a certain number of games. But I also think it's way more rampant than we think. And I think that a lot of U.S. athletes probably do, unfortunately. I had a friend who competed for the U.S. track team and who knows if he was bitter or maybe he was upset or who knows, but he chose to, instead of compete on his own and try and make the U.S. track team, he decided to compete as a guide for a Paralympic blind um, sprinter, which is so cool. But, you know, they're just as, like, just as fast and the, see, the seers, the guides have to do the same amount of training. And he basically just said in so many words that a lot of our athletes do end up doping. So I don't know. I just think it's more complicated than, than I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's no, it's good to get that context. I mean, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you more about kind of your personal Olympic experience, because I will never, ever be an Olympic gold medalist as much as I (laughs) dream and wish that I could be. What is the experience like to have won the gold medal, to be kind of standing on the podium with your teammates, listening to the national anthem? Well, I think first and foremost, like it's, I think what I try and remember and, you know, I've thought a lot about it and I've gone through some therapy, which is always good. But if you think about like, first, like if you, when I was training rowing and rowing, literally it was all I did. And so think about doing just one thing. Like everyone at Kellogg, I feel like is always doing 400 different things and really good at probably like 399 of them or 400 and you're super multitask, multi-talented and good at multitasking. Whereas when I was training full-time, it was literally only training. So I was focused on myself from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to bed and it can be quite selfish. And I don't mean that in like necessarily a negative way, but even like I miss a lot of weddings and bachelorette parties and friend hangouts. And even on holidays, I, you know, was so focused on getting my two workouts, workouts in a day that I miss some like family get togethers. And even if I could go home for the holidays. So you come from this place of only thinking about yourself being so laser focused on this one thing, feeling like you're making all the sacrifices in the world. So the pressure is high. And when I made the team, I made it in the women's eight. I was one of, or one of three. So three out of nine, because there were nine in our boat, including the coxswain, three of us were new to the, to the boat. The other six had competed in Beijing and won. And that particular event, and it had featured different rowers here and there, but that event hadn't lost a world championships, a world cup, um, or an Olympics since 2005. And so really, I think, a, I went into that Olympics once I'd made the team that was honestly the biggest, like I felt, I think that that was where I really was like, okay, thank God. <laughs> Cause that it's so competitive in the U S you don't find out until you, if you make the team until a month before the Olympic game. So it's a lot of stress, right. Leading up directly to the event. My dad, a year out, had wanted to talk about getting tickets. I was like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about it. You do you. You might go to the Olympics and I might not. So, and then a lot of people, I mean, I had some teammates who thought they were in the boat a month before and ended up being a stare and their parents, both sets of parents came out to the Olympics because they bought tickets and they didn't get to watch them compete. So it's pretty rough. So when you get there, it's all about, you know, preparation, preparation, preparation. You get there two weeks before it was kind of weird because 
like all like the courses, the course wasn't really set up yet, or, you know, the stands were kind of being set up slowly, but surely. And so it was all just practice. And so by the time we actually got to race, I was like, thank God I've been going stir crazy. I also hate tapering. I just like the feeling of being like a little tired. Cause when I have too much energy, I'm not like a huge, I'm not great at sprinting either. So I just feel like out of shape kind of <laughs> rather than like ready to go. Um, so once we got through all of that and we, you know, made the finals, we have our final race. I thought it was a, a definitely a great race. I personally think I could have performed better for sure, but you know, here, neither here nor there, but I think the, the real feeling for me, if I'm being completely honest, was just relief. It was relief that I, you know, I'd been injured a lot of that year. So it was relief that I just like stuck it out. It was a relief that we didn't lose. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to be the one, the boat that lost like in this sort of dynasty of winning. And so a lot of it was just that relief of like, this is this one thing that I've been thinking about for so many years and literally gave up everything to do. And it finally came to fruition. So it was that first. And then I think there was this moment. And honestly, that's kind of what I felt the whole time. And I, and it, I've always like, I think this is human nature, but had a hard time really being in the moment as well. Cause when you're there, it's like, okay, focus on the race. And then you get to the race and then you're like, okay, now what? Or like, okay, I need to get back. Well, rowers are also crazy. I'm sure some are like this too, Lindsay, but we like the rowers were in the gym the next day. Like we literally were done. We'd rest in the Olympics and we were like, Oh, gotta stay fit. Like, <laughs> so we were, I was in the gym the next day. Literally all I was thinking was like, Oh, I got to get back in shape. Cause I felt like I was, out. I don't know. Crazy. Um, so I wish I would have enjoyed it, the experience a bit more, but when I was on the podium, we, it's funny because most sports you get this, um, podium outfit in your gear that you're given. And in our year, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was this like cool sort of silver metallic jacket that was our part of our podium outfit. And we had these like yellow Nikes that were the, just like threaded and then like black sort of joggers, the coolest outfit. I loved it. And I was like, Ooh, I can't wait. Like we're going to look so great. And then I realized rowing. And I think maybe just rowing, I can't think of others goes straight from our boat to the podium. So we have no time to like put some makeup on or do our hair change or shower, put some deodorant on. <laughs> so, so we went directly from, you know, being on the water and the set, we pulled up right to the award stock and we were in these, like, and I don't love them. They're these unisuits, you know, form fitting tight spandex. And the top is all white spandex, which I'm like, who thought of that? It must've been a male. But So, and like, also I wore, I loved wearing racing in like really bright sports bras for some reason. And like that one had sort of bled through. So I'm like, and it's like, I look disgusting. I'm terrible. We had to take our hats off. So my hair's froze. And that was our sort of podium moment. So, which is fine. It's not about that, but also I was exhausted. So I was just trying to be like, where am I? What's happening? And so we get to the podium and you know, you hear the flat. And so I, I'd done kind of all that. And what's also weird about the Olympics is, well, no, this isn't, I guess it's a smaller event in that there are less rowing events. So it kind of feels like, like a little bit of like a smaller world championships in a way. I think what made it different was obviously the fact that there were way more crowds and you have the Olympic rings everywhere that you see on different signage, but it almost felt like, like a weird smaller regatta in some ways. And, um, so yeah, so, but anyway, so I, I experienced like being on the podium, getting the flowers, getting a medal, like getting the, putting the flag up, like, you know, singing the national anthem. I'd experienced that before at world championships, but I think it didn't really hit me until after we, you know, sang the national anthem. And then I looked over at one of my teammates and she knew, she knew like everything that I'd gone through. I'd lost my mom two years before and went straight back to training. And I told my mom, like, 
essentially on her deathbed, like, I'm going to make the, like, she told me, she's like, I really want to see you compete in the Olympics. And I was like, well, shit, now I have to go. <laughs> Thanks for the pressure, mom. So it's like, that kind of all came rushing at once and I didn't let myself. So I, I'd say that was the moment where I was like, okay, this is pr pretty freaking cool. And then my like 93 year old grandfather was there. So I rushed to go see my family who were sitting on the wrong side of the course per usual. We can't ever get it right. So yeah, so that, that experience I think was really cool. And I was dating a guy on the team at the time and he had just raced so I didn't know how he did so it's cool like I go talk to him and so it was really kind of a whirlwind but I'd say the immediate honest the honest to god truth is I was just glad it was over <laughs> I mean that's amazing that's awesome <laughs> I mean what what was your favorite moment outside of winning the gold medal yeah I mean I think it was just trying to the, the whole experience was a whirlwind i think what was really fun is the olympic village was really cool i mean they had like people walking around all the time they had flags everywhere from different countries the dining hall was this huge warehouse space where um they had food from all over the world and so you could literally you know same caterer i think but you could literally feel like you were eating wherever i remember that olympics there was this really young lithuanian swimmer who i think won the 100 breaststroke and I saw her uh, in the food dining hall and I just went up to her. I was like, you're amazing. <laughs> and people love that. So people, I mean, for the most part, like people are really open. So that was great. I got to meet the, the Ugandan who had won the marathon. And so got a picture with him. And so those experiences were really great. And then I think what was also really fun is just feeling like a celebrity kind of like I, it was funny because I am not, you know, no rowers were Nike sponsored athletes. And what a, a lot of Olympics will do is they'll have areas within the city. So this was in central London, but you know, different sponsors or different countries will rent out spaces and sort of make them their own and have parties there or pre-games or, you know, sort of events or whatnot. And so there was a PMG house. There was an Oakley house where you can go and get like a bunch of free stuff. There was a Nike house. There was a USA house. And so the USA house was really fun because it was like open bar, like all you can eat food, TVs everywhere. And a lot of athletes would go there first. So that was probably the funnest part. Cause you like just see all these athletes who would go there and start talking to them, or we snuck into the USA swimming um, event that they were having downstairs, like with their parents. And we were like, they had a few drinks. And so it was just, that was not, not my best moment, but, but yeah, I would say it was funny with the Nike house. Cause we're not, you know, rowing wasn't we weren't sponsored by Nike. We uh, were sponsored by Boathouse, which is a different company. And so, and none of us were like individual athletes sponsored by them. And I didn't really know anybody. So I was really trying to get in because I wanted to go in. I wanted to see what it was like. I wanted to have some of the food. And like, there was this whole area where you get like all this free gear. Although I had already gotten so much free stuff. I was like, why do I do this? But so like, they wouldn't let me in, wouldn't let me in. And then finally I like pulled out my medal. I was like, well, I won gold for the year. And they're like, okay, you can come in. <laughs> Or like they had a Beats house and a lot of people were waiting in line. And then I was like, oh, I'm my gold. And so I brought my medal and they let me go first. So it was the one and only time where I felt like I had some sort of, you know, celebrity. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, I just one quick question before we move to final cut. What are you most looking forward to watching at the 2022 Olympics or Paris 2024? Oh, great question. Well, I'm really excited about the 2022 Olympics because I will be here. I'm here in London. So I really am going to try and see what the coverage is like here. And I mean, obviously it'll be way more like British focus, which will be kind of annoying, but since competing in London, I've made some friends throughout the years 
like one who did luge, which I was asking her all these questions. I don't know how you get, I mean, and even the way she got into that and she was Olympian and luge. And so that's such a cool sport. And now learning more about it, I think I'd love to watch curling. I also find really fun because <laughs> it's so much harder than it looks. <laughs> and any of the, I don't know if you guys have seen them, um, any of the like snowboard cross, but I think that is so, so freaking fun to watch. Um, Cause they just race down this like crazy mountain and it's like no rules, basically no holds bar. So I'm really excited for that. And then I think for 2024, I mean, I'm more familiar with the summer Olympics, obviously, just cause that's what I competed in. And so, and watched the 2021 Olympics religiously, but I'm actually getting more involved with us rowing. I'm a US, I'm an athlete rep on the board this year. So I'm really excited because I think U.S. rowing is in a place where there's a lot of room for improvement. And this past, like there are so, so, so many great athletes. And it was the same coach that I had who was great in a lot of ways. And these athletes are so talented, but I think just the pieces didn't really come together, obviously a year. And especially with rowing where you just need like time together. It's hard with pandemic, but you know, it's the first time since 1908 that no American rower has meddled. So we've got our work cut out for us. So I think I'm really excited for the challenge of of trying to help in any way I can. And then also seeing what rowing can do in 2024. Yeah. Well, I'll be excited to watch. I really appreciate you, Taylor, taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us and your comments have been so thoughtful and insightful and, you know, love talking to you, have gotten to know you personally and, you know, you're just amazing. So very much looking forward to seeing what you do in the future, but now we'd like to do a segment we call the final cut, where we ask you a few questions about what content you're currently consuming. So kind of supposed to be rapid fire. And the first one is favorite piece of recent media that you would recommend. Oh, good question. Okay. Let's see. Well, I have my typical podcasts, which I love, which are Armchair Expert with Zach Shepard. I try and listen to the daily to get some sort of news. Snacks Daily, which is a business school <laughs> recommendation uh, from someone, which is good to just hear like, you know, top three business things. But I would say I'm really getting into cheer season two because I love the first season, but I also, I mean, euphoria, like it's just so good this season and it's dark and it's hard to watch. So I'm glad that it's kind of weekly, but it's just such a good show. What TV show or movie do you always rewatch if you're going to rewatch something? Oh, that's a good question. Probably Pride and Prejudice and Titanic. <laughs> Gotta love Leonardo DiCaprio. What famous person has been on your mind recently and why? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, okay. So I just listened to this episode of Armchair Expert with Kristen Stewart, and she is an actress who, like, I haven't, I don't know, like, felt like like I don't dislike, but I feel like she can kind of come across as cold or like a little edgy in a way that just can be off-putting, which is probably really unfair of me to say, but just getting to hear how she really is and like hearing her be a bit more vulnerable and then talking about her experience on Spencer, which I haven't seen. And then obviously being here in the, in London, I started watching it last night and she's so good in it and you can tell, yeah, she's just so talented. So I would say, yeah, just thinking about like why I had these biases towards her and like why that was unfair. And then also just thinking about like how I shouldn't think like that, (laughs) judge people based off of God knows what I might probably got upset. I'm like, how could you break up with rabbit pads? (laughs) Something stupid like that. I'm sure. (laughs) Even though like he's single now or was single. So more for us. What has been your favorite media experience related to Chicago or Evanston? Or even London, since you're since you're in London right now. No, oh, that's yeah. I'll give both. So London, I just went to the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on Sunday, 
which I guess has been around for 10 years. I didn't realize that. I knew it was had been around for a while, but highly recommend it if you have not seen it. I'm also happen to be a huge Harry Potter fan, but it's so amazing. It's like six hours of play, essentially. You get a break in between, but the special effects they have in place, like I didn't even know that was something you could do. It's really the way that the magic comes alive is un, like unbelievable, incredible. So I really enjoyed that. And then I would say in Chicago, you know, I'm not, I'm realizing now being in London that I've been going to these different museums or different, different plays. And I just checked out a play that I want to go to with some like well-known actors here in London. And I just haven't been taking advantage of that in Chicago. I've been, so that's my goal when I get back, but I would say I really like the Van Gogh immersive event. Like it was just a really unique thing. We're kind of sitting in this room and it's a bit trippy, but the music is all encompassing and you see all, all of his sort of paintings come alive all around you. I thought it was a neat experience. Very Emily in Paris. So what, and our last question is, what type of media could you live without? Whether it's music, movies, television, podcasts, games, or live experiences? Good question. I probably have to go games just because I don't really, I'm not a big gamer and all of those other things I consume like crazy. (laughs) So yeah, that's probably would be mine. (laughs) Although I do love, I mean, I have my old N64 that I'll pull out every once in a while. That's amazing. That's awesome. I mean, like I said, Taylor, thank you so much for joining Cut to Kellogg. It's been really fun having you on the show and, you know, we'll, it's just been amazing. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great to chat and yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Such a pleasure. This has been Cut to Kellogg. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow on Spotify and be sure to check out our blog, Lights, Camera, Kellogg. You can also follow us on Instagram at Kellogg Media Entertainment. Cut to Kellogg is a production of the Media and Entertainment Club at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. It is produced by Ray Hung, Lindsay Cowball, and Kelsey O'Connor. Our theme song is written and performed by Ryan Blackwell. Tune in next time to hear more on the insights of the media and entertainment industry.